electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Everybody, I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead. Tech stocks are going bonkers again, led by Meta and helped by both earnings and the Fed. Can the rally keep going when Apple, Amazon, and Alphabet all report tonight? We've got the key things to watch and how the market is positioned into those prints. Plus, Ray Dalio warns we're at the brink of economic war with China. But one of our guests says if you're looking for opportunity in equities, China is the place to be. What he's buying ahead. And onshoring supply chains and offshoring talent. We look at how technology is changing how companies work, who they hire, and where their workers are with XPRIZE founder and CEO Peter Diamandis. Before all that, though, Dominic Chu has our market numbers. Hi, Dom. All right, so, Kelly, the markets are mixed right now, but that's only part of the story and a small part of it because, as you can see, it's red on the screen right now for the Dow Industrials. They're down roughly 90-some points, a quarter of 1%, 34,000 almost on the dot. But it's not about the Dow today. It's very much about that tech, tech tech-heavier trade, certainly in technology, communication services, also in discretionary. Check out the S&P 500. We were watching 4,000. We're well above that now. 4,181 the last trade. They're up 62 points or 1.5%. This is the high of the session right now. The highs were 64 to the upside. At the lows, we were still up 22. So again, just about near session highs right now. And that NASDAQ composite trade, the tech heavier trade, as I point out, more than doubling the performance of the broader S&P 500. That tells you exactly what you need to know. It very much is about the technology trade today. Now, This bid, Kelly mentioned the Fed, the rate decision yesterday, the earnings reports that we've seen so far. It is putting a bid to many what some traders call risk-related assets, higher volatility-type momentum assets. We're talking names like ETFs, the ARK Innovation Fund, ARKK, up 8% today. GameStop, meme stock-wise, one of the original gangster ones, up about 6.5%. Carvana, in some financial problem, perhaps down the line, up 30% today, maybe a short squeeze there. Bitcoin and Ethereum prices, both up between one and a half and 3% right there. So again, a bid to risk-related assets. And then a, a big part of that story has to be meta platforms. The earnings results coming in, the big stock buyback program, the cost-cutting measures, Mark Zuckerberg more focused on certain things at meta platforms right now. All of that driving a 26% rise in meta platform shares. Remember, we still lost about 40% of its value over the year, Kelly, but that meta platforms trade certainly playing out big in today's session. We'll see if that carries over into other parts of that tech trade later on today, Kel. Back over to you. Exactly. Thank you, Dom. On that note, is Facebook or meta telling us things aren't as bad as feared? Or just that Mark Zuckerberg is getting better at changing the narrative to appease the naysayers. Like Christina Partsenevel has pointed out, the number of times he mentioned AI alone could explain the uh, stock market rally here. Let's get into the next raft of earnings tonight uh, with the action, the story, and the trade in earnings exchange. And we'll start with Apple coming off its worst year since 2008 with a 27% drop. Shares are higher today into the print, though. They're up around 150 again, and they've risen after three of the last four reports. Steve Kovac is live in Cupertino, interesting enough, uh, with the story on Apple. Hi, Steve. And Kim Forrest is founder and CIO of Boca Capital Partners, and she has our trades today. Kim, welcome. All right, Steve, what are you watching? 
Oh, what we're watching, it's all about how bad was that quarter uh, last quarter because of those production cuts that we know happened in China. Not enough people were able to get their iPhones in time for that holiday quarter where they typically sell the most iPhones. And also on top of that, we're seeing analyst estimates all over the place of how short they came up. At the high end, we have about 10 million fewer than expected. At the low end, about uh, 3 million or so. And then on top of that, uh, Kelly, does the demand carry forward? We know from Apple itself that they saw demand maintained throughout that holiday quarter. They just couldn't meet it because of the production problems. So does that demand carry over into this March quarter? Are they able to, uh, now that they have caught up on the production side, can they meet the demand? On top of that, we're looking at things like Mac sales, because as you remember last week when I was talking to you, Kelly, Microsoft showed this collapse in the PC market for consumer demand in right. PCs. We were already warned by Apple that the Mac sales will look pretty bad compared to year on year, so they're not immune to that either. The real question is, is the iPhone immune to it? And then over to services, we're seeing headwinds there, of course, from the strong dollar with foreign exchange. Also with a drop in mobile gaming, we got some more data from that from Electronic Arts just a couple of days ago. Mm-hmm. Mobile gaming is really falling off all the spend there. And then just App Store headwinds with advertising as well, Kelly. And the P.E. is back up to about 25 times. So, Kim, I turn to you. What should people do with Apple here? Sure. Well, you always have to remember when you're talking to me, I'm looking out three to five years. So. What I'm hearing from the analysts is they're playing the game, how low can we go? Because um, this has been a catastrophic sort of quarter, everything going wrong for Apple. And I'll take the opposite on that trade. What if, what if something went right and they actually uh, exceed their uh, low earnings? And I think that's a likelihood here with Apple being a grown-up in the world of managing the analysts. So I think that they will be able to report a good report, not a great report. But looking forward, do you want to own Apple? Do you think that they are going to create new products that we never knew we needed or wanted? I'm going to say yes. That is what their magic sauce is. And I would say if there's a dip here in Apple, take a bite. I only wonder, Kim, how much of this is priced in. You know, 25 times for Apple when this multiple got, I think it was well below 20 just a couple of months ago, and there was this argument over kind of what a normalized P.E. should be. 25 times gives them a lot of credit for a lot of things going right here, doesn't it? I mean, in other words, if you say the, the bar is low, I wonder if the bar is actually still pretty high. Well, it depends on your timeline. Again, I'm looking out three to five years in the future, and so I'm looking at what I think that they could earn if they grow even a little bit in their max sales and that area. But also, I'm going to give them credit for creating a new device. And I don't know what that is, but I'm sure Apple is working on it. And that's the sort of thing you're buying when you're buying this name is innovation and future sales. Sure. And this is very much a growth name where you're looking to the future. And may, I mean, obviously headset being one of those devices in the works. But Steve, also this goes to the question you've long discussed, which is people will pay up less for a hardware company over time than for a, a company with a software as a service type of subscription model that sees those prices constantly rising, demand constantly growing, and smoothness throughout uh, cycles. 
Yeah, that's right. And, and But you want to talk about the software side. Let's do, do talk about services because that is something I expect them to kind of brag about is how many subscriptions they have through the App Store. Keep in mind, that's recurring revenue and the App Store has been pretty weak on the gaming side. But when it comes to those subscriptions, they love to say how many uh, subscriptions they've been able to capture through the App Store, which they get to skim off the top, even if it's not their own app. And that shows the power and profit center of the App Store right there. So, And then as far as the hardware front, again, is that demand going to carry through? We know it's not going to be so hot on the Mac side, but again, iPhone is the profit center there on the hardware side. So if that can keep up, things will look pretty good. All right, we'll leave it there. Steve, busy afternoon for you. Thanks for checking in with us, Steve Kovac. And we'll move along to our next name here, which is Amazon. And it had twice as bad a year as Apple with shares down 50% last year for its worst year since 2000. Amazon warned last time it reported the fourth quarter revenue would come in below street expectations and recently announced those 18,000 job cuts. Could end up being its lowest revenue growth year, by the way, since 1997. Dear Jabosa, what will you be watching? I'm rewatching all sorts of things, but really it's core, Kelly. Um, online sales, that is key here because that's actually expected to decline. It's supposed to be down about 1%, which mean that, means that fundamentally Amazon, you know, is having a hard time. And this is a stock we know, as you said, it's suffered probably more than any other mega cap over the last year, shedding about half of its value last year. It overbuilt. Um, during the pandemic. And now it has to course correct for a lot of that. And I think some investors are wondering, is cutting 6% of your workforce, is that enough when Meta cut 11%? So does AWS too have more wood to chop here? This has typically been the profit engine of Amazon. But we heard from Microsoft last week. We heard from their CFO, Amy Hood, saying that there's more pain ahead for enterprise spending for the cloud space. So how is Amazon going to deal with that when it's facing other headwinds? It's advertising business. That could maybe be a silver lining, Kelly, although we Hmm. know that the whole ad market is downshifting a little bit. But remember, Amazon's ad business, which it grew and scaled very, very quickly, um, kind of in secret as well. It's intent-based, so something that that is going to be more resilient. But at the end of the day, the profitable Amazon that we have known over the last few years, that is expected to go away at least in 2022. This would be its first annual loss since 2000, since 2014, excuse me. Wow. All right, Kim, the stock is up 7% today, trades at 88 times. And uh, what do you think? Now, that's a multiple (laughs) when you're saying 88 times. And let's put this into perspective. Um, Their AWS is the driver of profitability for the company. And everything else they did, including um, their their core, you know, selling books to us, that's their first business, that is not a great margin-building business. It is not a great business. And they've had to add tremendously to serve the new people that they got during the um, the pandemic. And now that's over, and they have to unwind some of this. I am looking at Amazon that has to reinvent itself, and the core, which is the most profitable part of it, is forecast to be lackluster probably for the next year. Let's just call it that. Sure. So... I, I am not a fan of owning this company now, nor am I a fan for the longer term, just because it just looks like it's in so many different areas. Right. And for it's you, spending like mad to be in those areas. I feel like you, as, as a core tech person, would want to own AWS free and clear and not have this retail yep. business sticking around. 
Uh, I'm sure you're not the oh, only it's one. it's awful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's move on and get to Google because this one, Deirdre, feels like it could be most relevant for what we just learned from Meta. You know the drill by now. The stock is coming off its worst year since 2008. They have a, a little bit worse of a recent track record, rising on only two of its last four reports. And again, Meta and Alphabet arguably have the biggest business overlap here. Just so what do we think this means for expectations now that the stock is up 6% into the report? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the bar is being raised today, certainly. But what investors have really focused on over the last few quarters is that operating margin. And that has been declining. Um, we talk a lot about Meta's big ambitions in the metaverse. Alphabets are more spread out. It still gets about 80% of its revenue from that very profitable core advertising business. By the way, that's expected to decline again also. But it's spending a lot of money on its other bets category. Um, and as we enter this period of austerity or efficiency, as Zuckerberg called it so many times, CEOs are looking to cut costs. We know, again, that Google cut about 6% of its workforce. Similar questions to Amazon. Was it enough? Does it have to take a hard look at some of its other bets, as some investors have actually said that they should, like Waymo, like Verily, even if revenue is increasing at these units uh, losses are still large, relatively. Um, so that's going to be a sticking point. Certainly, investors want to know how those layoffs are actually going to create more efficiency. There's also this regulatory overhang, Kelly, which has been an overhang for years. But, you know, I think in the last few weeks, I saw a Wall Street note that was a downgrade of price target. It was still an overweight rating, but reduce of the price target on those regulatory concerns. And I don't know that I've seen that before. So this hmm. is starting to be something that maybe investors aren't quite as complacent on. And we know that that's coming down the pike it's in terms great of point. its ad business. Usually they just shrug it off. Uh, we don't care. Mm -hmm. This is all noise. Ignore it. Maybe it's different. Now, Kim, here's something different. 21 times forward PE is pretty reasonable. And apparently this uh, chat GPT has set off a bit, a bit of a code red inside Google. Sure, and it should, right? Because it's a sexy new technology that you can deploy in many different ways, and it looks like they don't have anything close to it. Right. Which is a surprise, given as much money as they have, um, you know, spent on various and sundry moonshots. We could go over those, but we won't. <laughs> but and this is probably my biggest negative stock here is because I love the uh, their core business. It is the most money-making business in the history of the world, and yet they've kind of paid less attention to that while they were out making, you know, autonomous cars and whatever else. And it's also under attack from regula regulators and, you know, the DOJ. So this, this company really has to do things right for the next couple of years to ensure its survival, not just that it thrives economically. Quick follow-up, and I'm surprised you're, you are that negative on it, but what about those who say, listen, forget core Google even, YouTube is the most valuable thing in town. I mean, you've seen the data lately that there are, the younger generation basically is on YouTube nonstop for like 10 hours a day. Just it's, it's, it's part of the fabric sure. of life. And how much can that overcome some of those shortcomings you described? My, my big issue about it, even though it's hot right now, consumers are consumers and they're incredibly fickle, especially with entertainment and shopping. Mm. Those are the two areas that you could be hot and then dead in minutes, right? Yeah. I, it's hyperbole on my part, but somebody else could come along with a different platform with a slightly different spin 
and off you go. We're going to forget YouTube. It'll be like MySpace, mm -hmm. whatever that is. Right. <laughs> For those of you who aren't familiar, MySpace was a pretty <laughs> uh, Wow. So negative on Google and uh, much more positive on Apple. Uh, we appreciate it so much, Kim. Thanks for joining us today. Kim Forrest with our trades. Deirdre, thank, thank you. you as well. Deirdre Bosa. Meanwhile, it's been a wild 24 hours for central banks and bond markets around the world. First, Jay Powell and the Fed, that quarter uh, base, uh, 25 basis point rate hike, saying they still expect ongoing increases. This morning, Christine Lagarde, the European Central Bank, hiked by half a point. They are pledging to stay the course, signaling another half point hike next month. Then there's the Bank of England increasing rates half a point and saying they now see a much shallower recession than feared. So why are global yields sinking right now? Steve Leisman is here to hopefully explain, Steve. Yeah, Kelly, in the past 24 hours, three major central banks have hiked, prompting bond yields in all three economies to decline. The opposite of what you think. Market showed absolutely no respect to the rate hikes from Powell, Bailey and Lagarde at the Fed, the Bank of England and the European Central Bank, even while all three promised more rate hikes to come. Take a look here at what happened. Fed up 25, U.S. 10-year down 13 basis points. ECB up 50, the Bund down 19 basis points. BOE up 50, guilt falling by 27 basis points. It looks like the markets did not hear central banks, the part where they said it's too early to declare a victory or concern themselves with promises of more rate hikes and, and holding maybe 25 or 50 from the Fed, at least 50 more from the ECB, probably more than that. BOE a little more unclear, but markets priced in another 25 from the U.K., what did they hear? They heard Powell say there is ongoing disinflation. They heard Bailey say the first signs of inflation, he's seen the first signs of inflation has turned the corner. Lagarde, she tried to hold the line but had no more luck than the other central bankers at tightening financial conditions. You can see, take a look here, the skepticism of markets when it comes to rates staying high by looking at the distribution of probabilities for the December 23 Fed contract. Everyone is betting on the left side of the of the uh, of the distribution. There is no bid on the Fed being above its 2023 forecast. That risk is out of the market. But there's danger here. The danger is a market priced wholly for the Fed to be totally wrong. Banking on 50 basis points of cuts this year. Danger for the Fed and other central banks loosening financial conditions that could spark, Kelly, renewed inflation. But there's no way, Steve, this is the, a reaction that, say, Jerome Powell would want. You know, I think Jerome Powell is in the camp of, and I think you'll appreciate this metaphor, Kelly, the kids want to go outside and play. His forecast shows rain clouds coming. And he's like, all right, you guys want to go out and play? Go ahead. I can't <laughs> stop you anymore. But I'm not coming. I'm not running out there with umbrellas. And they're going, yeah, you will. <laughs> you always do. <laughs> no, I take that. Now, now, that's a very important point, Kelly. <laughs> Kelly, you should underline what you just said. If you think the market is trading with that Fed put still in there, that is a very interesting idea. I, I don't know. I know. It's hotly debated. I, you know, you're, you're. I, I, yeah. Well, you can't just say that and move on, Kelly. You can't just say that and move on. That's, those are kind of interesting fighting words right there. If that's no, I, the case, the market may be in for a really rude awakening right there. I, I am I am truly trying to, to kind of unpack it as much as you are um, and figure out what exactly okay. people are positioning for. But like you said, to be continued. Steve, thank you. Speaking of global markets, billionaire investor Ray Dalio weighing in on the growing tensions between China and the U.S. earlier today. Take a listen. We are right at the brink that you could have an economic war with a form of sanctions that would be, if it happened, really shocking to the, uh, to the economy, world economy. 
and longtime China bull Stephen Roach echoing that bearish sentiment right here on the exchange just a week ago, saying he's more concerned about China than he's ever been. But my next guest says the end to zero COVID and the reopening make China one of the best equity stories out there right now. Joining us is Andrew Slimman, Senior Portfolio Manager at Morgan Stanley Investment Management. Great to see you, Andrew. You know these arguments better than anyone, although I don't know if Ray Dalio stopped you cold a bit this morning. Well, I also, you know, I heard him say, you know, about a 35% chance of that. So he's not putting, that's not his base case, but, 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 but what happens in China, it's, it's following a similar pattern, which is you get much bigger busts uh, in bear markets than you have in the Western economies, uh, down 30 to 50% on average. This bust was down 63%. And because it was so bad, the initial rally, and we're up 50% off the low, doesn't induce foreign investors to come in because they remember the previous bust. And that's why if you look at the previous three times that China had a bust like we've seen, the rally is well over 100%. Sure. And so, so I think we're, we're just, we haven't sucked in foreign investors yet. These stocks are only back to where they were kind of last summer. So I think there's there's, you know, more upside. I don't want to dismiss, you know, a 50 percent return because people would be happy for that after the past year. But are they wondering if the risk is worth that potential return? Um, you know, just could it, the fact that the zero covid abandonment looks like a bit of an act of desperation. It sort of makes you wonder how bad is the economy really? How much is it slowing? Really? We have they have a major demographic problem that's now coming home to roost. That's why Roach is getting more bearish now. So. You know, are, are we picking up uh, pennies in front of a, a steamroller kind of thing? Yeah. So, again, those are two strategists, and I'm a portfolio manager that could buy stocks. So I think that's a big difference. But what I see is these stocks are down a lot. They are, are earnings. The, the nirvana of investing is to buy stocks where earnings revisions are going up, and you can get P.E. expansion also. Re earnings have been revised down so much. The reopening is happening at a quicker rate because I think, to your point, they have to make it successful, right? So they're going to aggressively reopening. We're seeing the government being a lot more friendly to companies than they've been in the past. So I think it makes for a very attractive area. Now, to be clear, I'm not. That's not the only place we invest. I just think it's. It's probably, you know, sure. I was on in December with you, Kelly, and I said, I think China's going to be the best performing market in, in, in 2023. And I still stick with it, but I concede there is certainly global risk. And that's why you want some global diversification. No, and you were, you were spot on about that. In fact, before we let you go, there's a similar kind of run in the home builders. So a name like Lennar that you liked, when I look at the home builder ETF almost trading higher now than it was, Look, I thought trading two times earnings was crazy, but I also think it's a little crazy now that we're talking about five-year highs for some of these stock prices, all-time highs in some cases. I'm curious if you think investors should stay with this trade. I, I think the home builder, you know, it, it was a great indication. Home builders bottomed and started to rally before interest rates started to come down. And that headline is funny. Just before... You know, I came on headline from CNBC said mortgage rates dropped below 5% for the first time. So the home builders told you which way interest rates were headed. But I think the next trade is to think, well, the home builders have done very well. What are other companies 
that are tied to the home builders that haven't done quite as well. So I think it's the, you know, the home apparel, home furnishing, things in that source that are just Generate. starting to recover. Yeah, they're just starting to recover. I think those are the next trade. But I do concede, boy, these home builders have run a long way. And one of the things I would point out about that, Kelly, is home builders are the earliest of the early cycle stocks, as are semiconductors. Why in the world are these stocks rocketing if what is so perceived on Wall Street is earnings are about to collapse and we're about to have a bad economy? But what what if they're peaking? What if they're peaking? What if this is it? That that could be true, but I don't think you would see the strength that you're seeing. Fair no enough. different than look at the look at the brokerage firms. They're they're hitting all time highs. Those don't do well if we're about to have a collapse. So I think I think the message here is that the first half is probably going to do a lot better than what most perceive. A lot seems to be coming around to that point of view. Absolutely. And you were early on it. <laughs> and to your, I told to your, you You did tell it. At least you benefited our <laughs> listeners, even if I uh, no. Andrew, thank you so much. It's good to see you again. Take care. Andrew Sliman, we appreciate it. Now, he teased this. We have some big news on mortgage rates. Diana Olick, what just happened? Well, Kelly, it's all because of what Steve just said a couple of minutes ago. The average rate on the 30-year fix now has a five handle. It started this week at 6.21%, fell sharply yesterday after the Fed chairman's presser to 6.04, and today 5.99%, just barely in the fives. The 30-year fix loosely follows the yield on the 10-year Treasury. Now, rates have not been this low since basically two days in early September, but really long-term, not since early August. So for t- potential buyers, that means savings. If you're buying a $400,000 home today with 20% down, you are paying close to $300 less on the monthly payment today than you would have when rates peaked well over 7% just last October. Now, lower rates already appear to be juicing buyer interest. Pending home sales, which measure signed contracts on existing homes, rose in December for the first time in six months. That was unexpected. Obviously, the home builders, as you said, are reacting quite well to the prospect of lower rates with the home building ETF ITB hitting a new one-year high up over 3% today on the day. And it's not just lower rates, but big builders Pulte and DR Horton both just reported earnings beats, noting a surge in December buyers. Once again, Kelly, thanks to those lower mortgage rates. Wow. We are salivating over 5.99%. But seriously, how much times have changed? It's crazy. Diana, thank you for bringing that to us, our Diana Olick. Still ahead, we've got the jobs report. It doesn't stop the action. Tomorrow, it's the jobs report, and that's now front and center for investors. And we've got a little preview. Recruiter.com's latest read on the labor market. Some really interesting slices on a look at how much longer things can hold up. Plus, healthcare is the worst performing sector to start the year. And today's results from three big drug makers aren't helping turn things around. We'll look at some opportunities in the space with a doctor turned biotech investor. And as we head to break, here's a glance at the markets and what an odd picture it is. The Dow's down 91 points. The S&P is up 1.5%, and the Nasdaq is flying with an over 3% gain. We'll be back after this, the 10-year below 3.4%. This is The Exchange on CNBC. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve with the help of T-Mobile for Business. Our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. 
From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. January jobs data out tomorrow. Investors are closely watching payrolls and wages for any signs of a big slowdown. But earlier this week, Apollo's Torsten Slock told us one reason he still expects a soft landing is labor hoarding. Companies are simply keeping a tight grip on workers they struggled to hire in the last couple of years. And job openings may still be high right now because workers are getting more hesitant to leave their current jobs. According to new data from Recruiter.com, the number of candidates with only one job the past two years is up to 57 percent. And joining me now, in fact, to discuss is Evan Sony. He is the chairman and CEO of Recruiter.com. Welcome back, Evan. Good to see you again. Good to see you as well, Kelly. What's the overall message this month? Yeah, I think if we look at the theme, I would say that if 22 was about hiring at all costs, 23 is about right-sizing and retention. And that's really what we're seeing. We're seeing companies that overhired in 22, and we talked about that on your show, uh, your segment as well, are now right-sizing the supply chain of labor and really focusing on retaining those employees. And that, that's actually what you just reported. You're reporting that, that candidates are less likely to leave their company right now. And that's really the, the passive candidate. Those are the candidates that recruiters actually target. What's interesting is that in our, uh, talent, uh, uh, our uh, top resume job seeker index, uh, the active candidates, people actually looking for jobs, that actually sentiment increased. Hmm. So they're feeling better about their likelihood of finding jobs because the passive candidates, the ones that are actually at companies, are being held on to more closely by those companies to really get that uh, return on investment that was made in hiring them in 22. You know, this is like a, a tug of war. On the one hand, we have record low jobless claims. On the other, you know, record high job openings. On the other hand, the challenger layoff announcements this morning were pretty bad. I mean, the biggest January increase since 2009. Uh, we're seeing it spread from tech to retail to um, finance, you know, real estate, construction. And is small business the key here, that small businesses in general are hiring and retaining, and that is what accounts for this mismatch between the high-profile layoff announcements we're hearing, but the fact that we haven't seen the labor market slow more broadly? Yeah, the, you're, you're dead on. The other thing that we saw were more recruiters were actually working on roles in that forty dollars to $80,000 salary band. Hmm. So you could think of those as the, the entry level, the mid-management level. And if you're having recruiters work on those roles, it really means that they're really hard to find and to really both source, engage, and get those, uh, get those workers into those companies themselves. Final comment then on wages. How does this likely to shake out, do you think? Yeah, so really weird. Again, tug of war. We saw the same number of recruiters report wage increases to the same number that reported uh, no change or a decrease. So really uh, not seeing a very high a high demand on the wage side. I think hiring at all costs, which was sort of the beginning of, of 22's 
theme is really not happening today uh, in those roles themselves. And the theme I'm, I'm gleaning from you is more balance. You know, it's not one of rapid deterioration, uh, but that it sounds more even. And that, that itself is a slowdown <laughs> from the past couple yeah, of no, years. Definitely. I, I think there's also going to be a really big push for retention. So if companies are actually trying harder to hold on to their employees by creating great, greater work-life balances, uh, more culture activities, et cetera, it's really going to be hopefully the recruiters, and that's where, where we really come in, uh, to really go after those passive candidates. True. So I think if there was a lot of job mobility in 22, it's slowing up. By the way, every month, according to the Jolt Report, we are still above, and the quit rates above 2019's average. Right. So the 2019 average was 3.5 million. You're still above that. We've had over 4 million quits per month uh, in every month in uh, in 20 uh, in 22. Still highly unusual. Uh, points to what sounds like still a decent amount of strength. Evan, thanks so much as always for uh, setting that up for us. We appreciate it. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. Evan Sohn, Recruiter.com. Still ahead, we've got more on the job market, including why some white-collar work could be permanently on the decline. A look at how technology and AI are leveling the playing field in the labor market. The exchange is back after this. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome back to The Exchange. Take a look behind me at the NASDAQ. It's up more than 400 points right now. What's even stranger about that is the Dow is down 80. A big reason for that drop is weakness in mega cap uh, insurance and healthcare names, United, Travelers, Amgen, things like that. S&P 500, there's your broad market gauge, up 1.5%. Let's check on mega cap tech, which is helping to power this NASDAQ run right now. Apple up 3% at reports tonight. Alphabet up 6% it reports tonight. Microsoft up 4% and Amazon with a 7 and a half percent run into its earnings. So we've got big action into those trades later, which is likely to set up potentially an even bigger response. All of this keyed off by Meta, whose shares are jumping 20 percent after that report. Let's get to Tyler Matheson for our CNBC News update. Ty? What's the cliche? Buy the rumor, sell the... Oh, I didn't say it. All right. Thanks. Thanks, everybody. Here's what's happening at this hour. House Republicans have voted to strip Democrat Elon Omar of her position on the Foreign Affairs Committee. In a heated debate on the House floor, some Republicans accused Omar of being an anti-Semite. Many Democrats say the move is retribution for the ouster of two hard-right Republicans from their committee assignments. Arkansas Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders will deliver the Republican response to President Biden's State of the Union address. As the youngest governor in the nation, Sanders says she looks forward to representing a new generation of GOP leaders and highlighting the differences between Republican and Democratic visions for the nation. And the head of the European Commission is in Kyiv for a summit with Ukrainian President Zelensky, saying European aid for Ukraine has topped $55 billion since the beginning of the Russian invasion. This, as Zelensky warns, Russia is preparing a major new offensive as the first anniversary of the war. Kelly approaches. Back to you. Yikes. All right, Tyler, thank you. See you soon. Coming up, healthcare was the trade to be in in 2022, but this year is so far a very different story. Should you jump back into the trade? We'll speak with one leading VC who says there are two key factors she's watching closely. That is next.
Welcome back to The Exchange. Big Pharma reported this morning. It was kind of a mixed bag. Eli Lilly, for instance, crushed estimates, hiked earnings guidance, but shares are lower on weak sales of its two diabetes drugs, down about 5%. Merck also beat on the top and bottom lines, helped by strong sales of that cancer drug, Keytruda, but the stock is falling on its weak full-year guidance. It's down 4%. And Bristol-Myers, for its part, climbing on strong earnings and guidance, hanging out on to about a 1.5% gain. Now, overall, it's been kind of a weak start to the year for the healthcare sector, down about 3%. The bright spot has been biotech. This is the reverse of what we saw last year. It's up about 3%, and that's where my next guest sees big gains ahead. Let's bring in Dr. Christiana Barden, co-managing director of MPM BioImpact Capital. And your background is so impressive. I'm like nervous talking to you, uh, Dr. Barden. Thank you for being here and welcome. Thanks for having me. So what jumps out to you first and foremost about why you think biotech is suddenly the place to be? What, what is the, the message and the urgency here for investors? So there's going to be a few big trends in the industry. So we should remember one, pharma, despite its weakness today, or Lilly, for example, is going to see a major trend in the treatment of obesity. They miss numbers primarily because they're having capacity issues for the production of Lunjaro. So the launch has been a little bit noisy. That being said, analysts like Dave Reisinger have $26 billion in peak sales for that drug, which promises up to 20% efficacy in the treatment of obesity and diabetes. So really incredible efficacy. I think that's going to be a big tailwind for the industry. Point number Go ahead. I was just going to say to make sure that people caught what you're saying here. You know, we are suddenly talking about obesity drugs in a way that certainly I have not ever noticed. And again, with all of the problems that are coming with this is an acknowledgement that maybe some of these can actually work. Do you think this is going to become the next big kind of category or catalyst for investment is to say that maybe these can and will be, you know, I'd liken it to um, what is cholesterol drugs, for instance, the way that that just become became so commonplace. Do you think that's what we're talking about here? Absolutely. I mean, the main issue so far with the treatment of obesity has been lack of efficacy. But what we're seeing with this current generation of drugs from starting with Novo and Lilly's drug is incredible efficacy. We're seeing 20 to 30% weight loss, which is really unheard of. And at some point, we'll, we'll mirror what we can achieve with bariatric surgery. So I think the treatment of obesity is a huge tailwind for the pharmaceutical sector and that, in turn, is a tailwind for biotech, because whenever biotech and pharma do something great for society, that's when people are reminded of what a great industry we are. That's an interesting point. And also, do you think it can kind of be the next Ozempic? So for, for you know, we've all been following along, obviously, the chase to kind of get access to that drug. Are your recommendations for investors then who want to jump onto this as we're really just starting to take off to say Lilly and Novo, Novo are the ways to play this going forward? Yeah, they're the two lead, and there's actually a bit of a paucity of drugs in this space, but we're going to see a lot more development, obviously, because this is going to be one of the biggest categories in the history of pharmaceuticals. I think as well, this generates a tremendous amount of cash flow for the sector, which ultimately gives rise to a lot of M&A activity. So I think the other setup that we're seeing here in biotech for 2023 is a big M&A year. So deal making, and I see that there's a couple of kind of drugs in particular that could be catalysts here. Would that then favor owning biotech, for instance, or is kind of the targeted class there? Um, is there any acquisition risk if people say, well, I own big pharma, but then all of a sudden they did all these costly acquisitions or, you know, maybe some of the pipelines to the point about you know, the results this morning, maybe the pipelines weren't as robust as expected? Well, for sure, right now, there's a little bit of a swap in terms of risk on. So people are moving out of large cap pharma and biotech into 
riskier assets, large cap pharma and large cap biotech into smaller cap biotech. So that's why we're seeing a lot of activity in the NASDAQ today, for example. M&A is going to be a big driver this year. First of all, as you know, pharmaceutical companies rely on biotech company acquisitions to basically feed the commercial pipeline. And we have an incredible crop of companies this year that are mature, that have produced strong phase three data, that are even approved and ready to be acquired. So from that perspective, I think M&A is going to be a big driver for the sector, and therefore a lot of attention is going to be paid to the biotech. Quick final word then, other than the Lilly and Novo, as I mentioned, for the obesity drugs, is there any final investment recommendation you'd leave with people? Yeah, so with regard to MNA, I think there's a lot of activity, first of all, around viruses. We're still very interested in antivirals. Um, COVID is over for a little bit, but I think we'll see a lot of resurgence. Two, I think we're going to be a lot of activity in obesity-related illnesses. So Madrigal, which is developing a disease for obesity-related liver failure, just completed their phase three. They're a great candidate for MNA. We've got other great companies, for example, Prevention, which treats diabetes and prevents the onset of diabetes in children, they've shown that they can prevent it in over, uh, for three years and beyond. That's an incredible asset, already approved, ready for acquisition. So wow. again, I think we have a crop of great biotech companies that are ready to be acquired, and that's ultimately going to drive a lot of interest in the sector. Amazing. It, listen, I, I almost feel better after just talking to you and hearing <laughs> about it. Like Maybe we're going to go out there and, and cure some things and solve some problems. Uh, Dr. Christiana Barden, thanks for your time today. We appreciate it. Good to see you. Thanks for having me. Still ahead, TikTok, from that to TikTok, uh, revealing how they moderate content on their platform. Will it be enough to quiet the rumblings on Capitol Hill over this ban? We'll talk about that next. Don't go anywhere. TikTok stepping up its transparency efforts as regulators call for a nationwide ban. Julia Borston here with the latest. Julia? Kelly, TikTok is also ramping up its PR campaign as Democratic Senator Michael Bennett just today asked Google and Apple to remove TikTok from their app stores. The senator saying, quote, no company subject to the Chinese Communist Party dictates should have the power to accumulate such extensive data on the American people. TikTok responding to this, saying that the senator, quote, relies almost exclusively on misleading reporting about TikTok, the data we collect and our data security controls. TikTok going on to say that the senator ignores the plan that it negotiated with the Treasury's Committee for Foreign Investment in the U.S., CFIUS, to transfer its data into the U.S., an effort it's doing in partnership with Oracle, what it's calling Project Texas. Now, all of this comes as TikTok unveils the Transparency and Accountability Center at its Los Angeles headquarters. Now, this center doesn't include any employees, Rather, it's designed for regulators and journalists to walk through its policies for recommending content and its tools for moderating offending content on the platform. Now, today, TikTok also updated its enforcement of its guidelines with a new system that's a strike system for repeat offenders and new tools for users to control what they see on the very popular app. But TikTok is facing growing bipartisan concern so, Kelly, we'll see if these efforts make a difference. Wow. Uh, the, uh, the, the press continues forward. Julia, thank you very much. Still ahead, XPRIZE Foundation founder Peter Diamandis joins us to discuss how tech will continue to reshape the workplace. This isn't just a COVID story. We've got the details next.
Three years after the pandemic forced employees to work from home, the technologies that made that happen are still revolutionizing the way we do business. And what we saw during COVID is just the beginning, according to a recent article in The Economist. Arjun Romani wrote the piece on how technology is redrawing the boundaries of the firm. He joins us now along with Peter Diamandis, the founder and executive chairman of the XPRIZE Foundation. Welcome to both of you. Arjun, let me just start with you. And in, in, in a way, what you're saying is that, you know, this gets around the H-1B visa problem a little bit. I mean, companies can literally have people doing work elsewhere. And thanks, Kelly. And, and that's a great point. When uh, firms made these massive investments <clears throat> in, uh, you know, Zoom and Slack and really changing their management practices so that they can work with, uh, you know, people at a distance, that also helps you work more with freelancers, you know, temporary contractors, other firms. If you look at the data, it's quite striking. There's a survey from the Atlanta Fed that shows, you know, nearly 20% of firms are using more contractors and more outsourcing, 10% more offshoring. And that lets you, of course, if you're not able to, you know, hire people domestically, get a visa, bring them into the country, then increasingly firms are able to outsource even skilled tasks uh, abroad to countries. If you're in America, to Canada, to Brazil, especially India, where, sure. you know, the IT services firms helps you massively. Peter, this is such a perceptive point uh, to make here, but in one that's worth dwelling on to, you know, we have made this big effort in the past five years to onshore manufacturing and supply chains, but you're saying at the same time, we're offshoring talent. What are the implications of that? Yeah, Kelly. So uh, we're in a situation where post-COVID, the supply chains that were global were causing companies difficulty. A lot of these companies are onshoring uh, using robotics and 3D printing and exponential technologies to try and get the price down of manufacturing as low as it was in Southeast Asia, China, and so forth. So that onshoring on is happening. But the ability to have what I call a geographic arbitrage, where I can get incredible AI talent, and I do, uh, in Brazil, uh, it used to be in Russia and Ukraine. Now those individuals have moved to Poland. And so I employ, even in my small companies, a, a, a global workforce. And if they're on Zoom and on Slack, on Teams, uh, a lot of times I don't actually know where they are when they're on the call. Um, it's a matter, are they delivering what they need to do? And can I get their services at are a third the price I would if they were in San Francisco or L.A.? A thousand percent. And are they productive? You know, this is the everyone sitting back here in New Jersey, Peter, who's going through their commutes uh, to Manhattan and, and losing their minds again is going, all right, are you hiring or, or can my company learn from yours? Can we get back to, yeah. to some work from home? So, listen, there's a lot of different functions that do need people coming together and they're not as productive in a lot of ways, but there are ways to make up for it. Now, where we're heading to, I mean, we're using you know, the tyranny of Zoom where it's you're in a little box or on Slack and so forth, where we're heading in the next, you know, two to five years. And I think we haven't seen any of the implications from the pandemic yet in terms of reinventing work is going to be living in the metaverse where we have a uh, high resolution video of ourselves, our avatars, we're interacting. There's so much magic that occurs face to face and brainstorming with a group Absolutely. that I miss. And we're going to get that back uh, using technology again. Wouldn't that be nice, Arjun, in the, you know, the 10 seconds that I have left? Is this going to, just as offshoring depressed wages for blue-collar workers, is offshoring talent going to depress wages for white-collar ones? I think that's the, the, the prediction you would get from any economist, and I spoke to many of them. 
and yeah, exactly. When you face more competition, you broaden the supply of labor that you're competing against, that will depress wages. Though, of course, as Peter said, there's still advantages to in-person. So maybe maybe it won't be as bad as the, the previous wave. We'll, well see. I, I'm so glad you both were able to join us today because this is a great piece that everyone should read. Yep. Yeah, real quick, Peter. And Kelly, it's my mom's birthday today. She's watching. So happy oh, birthday, mom. Happy birthday. Oh, I'm so glad we got that in. Wonderful. And, and you happy. know what? It's actually my, my dad's birthday as ah, well. So that's what? kind of funny. I feel like you're putting <laughs> awesome. me on. All right. Happy birthday uh, to Arjun's dad and to Peter's mom. Thank you both for watching. Thank you both for being here. Uh, and that does it for this hour of The Exchange. CNBC is now accepting nominations, by the way, for Disruptor 50. If you're a private venture-backed company, scan this QR code on your screen. Go to cnbc.com disruptors to learn more. Power Lunch starts in just two minutes time. Please join us. There's Tyler getting ready. I'll join him on the other side of this break. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve with the help of T-Mobile for Business. Our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. 